Well, it's a gift to be here with you this morning to open the Word of God together with my, my home church that I've been a part of, uh, well, since the beginning, so all through the pandemic and, and even before. So it's a privilege to be here with you. Uh, with it coming up on May, it reminded me of my young adult years. I spent two or three years working as a staff worker at a summer camp. Anybody worked at summer camp before? There's a few. Okay. If you have worked there, you know that sometimes you are put in charge or you're working in areas in which you aren't particularly a specialist. And that's okay if you're selling candy or in the games room. But sometimes it might be a little more dangerous, like when I read, uh, led riflery one summer. Um, had no particular experience except for point and shoot away from the people and towards the targets. Um, but I, one summer in particular, uh, this came to bear when my boss came to me one day and said, Matt, tomorrow you are leading the repelling wall for grade one and two students. Okay, now this is in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. So down the side of the mountain, I am sending kids over the edge. And I'm like, well, that's great, boss, but I've never been repelling. I've never seen repelling. And I wouldn't have even known how to pronounce or spell it until now. He's like, you'll do great. It'll be fine. Okay, this was before Google and YouTube. So I'm like, all right, I guess so. So I get up there the next day and these kids come up and the kids have a story in their mind because for many of them, it's their first time. And their story is this, I'm going to die. And so they're up there being like, Mr. Kitchener, will it be okay? And I'm like, you'll do great. It'll be fine. Go over the wall. And I'm sending these dear kids over the wall. In the meantime, I'm like, oh my gosh, they are going to die. (laughs) Thank God. There were no injuries that day. Thank God there was no huge lawsuit towards my camp. But I'll tell you what, at the end of that day, I went back to my boss and I said, listen, boss man, I got to learn to repel. So uh, I'm taking some hours off and I did learn to repel. Everything was fine. But there was this battle of stories that day at the top of the mountain. And I was sending these kids over the edge. They're saying, I'm going to die. I was saying, you will be fine. The kids should have listened to their story, not to mine, because I didn't know what I was doing. The battle of stories is the background for the text that we uh, find ourselves in today, and that is Colossians chapter 3. And it's part of the background of this story because uh, Paul, or most likely Paul, is writing to this church in Colossae, probably a small church in a town that was probably one of the least important towns that Paul uh, planted a church in or or wrote to. And these young uh, church, uh, small church, finds themselves surrounded with other huge narratives. And and the stories go like this. There's a grand story that's over all of that region at the time, and it's a story of empire. One story said this, the emperor rules. He's in charge of everything. Probably the emperor at this time was Nero. Nero is in charge. You look at your money, you see a picture of Caesar. You look at some of your buildings, you're going to see an image of Caesar. In fact, how the town of Colossae had even evolved was based on the empire. A couple of decades before this letter was written, uh, the town had needed to be rebuilt. There was a, a problem with earthquakes. And when the road was rebuilt, it bypassed Colossae. 
sending it from the most important city in the region to far down the list. And so even the way the town itself had grown, or in this case shrunk, was because the empire rules. That's who's in charge. Nero is in charge. In fact, the emperor ruled to the extent that you were supposed to worship the emperor. That's one grand story. There's a second story that is more local, and that is a story that some scholars have called the Colossian heresy. We don't know the exact shape of it except for this letter uh, to the Colossians, but it seems, based on what we can read, that it include the worship of angels and very strict moralistic rules. And so, so this, uh, this story, if, if you want to get a little more, hear a little more about it, you can go back last week and listen to Pastor Anthony's uh, sermon, and he, and he included just a few more details. But for our purposes today, the exact shape of the stories don't matter, except that you know there's this clash of stories. What really matters here is that these stories claimed to give the definitive answer to the big questions they asked and we ask today, and that is, who or where is true life found, and who or what is supreme? Who's really supreme? Where is true life found? These uh, stories said, we know the answer, go over the wall. We know what's true, go over the wall. And there are huge implications for which story you believe. Will you believe the story of empire? This uh, local religious story? Or is there another better story? And in the book of Colossians, uh, Paul is not shy to try to undercut the other stories. He, he says, no, 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 no. These aren't the truest stories. There is a bigger, better, truer story. And the story is not found in pious rules or powerful kings. That's not where life is found. And he'd want us to know the same today. Whatever we think is in charge of this world, wherever we think true life is found, if it's apart from one person and one posture, we're missing the boat. And so what I want us to hear today is one person and one posture. There's only one person whose story is big enough to encompass all the other stories. And there's one posture to which we are invited in relation to this person. One person, one posture. Okay, one person. So whose story is the bigger, better, truer story? If, if I was uh, up here today uh, with, uh, you know, doing a children's sermon or like uh, Desea teaching Sunday school and I told the kids, listen, there's a prize if you give me the right answer. Whose story is the best story? There'd be kids putting their hands up and saying, I know the answer, Jesus. That is the right answer. Unsurprisingly, the Sunday school answer today is the right answer. There's only one person's story who's big enough to encompass all the rest. And that is the story of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, risen, ruling, and returning. The story of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, risen, ruling, and returning. Colossians 2 summarizes uh, uh, Paul's thoughts here uh, that we looked at last week. Listen to his words in light of these two other stories. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. There it is right away. It's not Nero. 
It's not Caesar where all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. No, 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 no. It's Christ. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. It's not get in touch with your inner angel. It's not, you know, beat yourself over the head with a bunch of rules. No, 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 no. That's not where life is found. The fullness of life is found in Christ. He is the head over every power and authority. He's over Nero. He's over angels. He is the head, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised. There's his story. Christ crucified, buried, raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. There it is. Paul is saying, nope, it's not Nero. Nope, it's not inner angels or moral uh, rules. No, 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 no. It's in Christ. So what's the deepest story? What's the fundamental narrative? It's not that Nero reigns and you better accept the peace that he brings at the edge of the sword. It's not Pax Romana. It's not empire. The deepest story is not seek spiritual highs through angels and ascetic practices. That's not the best story. The fundamental narrative, the best story, the one person, is that Jesus, creator God, become human. He lived a fully human life. And then he was crucified at the request of the religious leaders by the hands of military and political leaders. The rulers of this world came together to crucify Jesus, but he has been raised from the dead. And he is now ruling at the Father's right hand, and he will someday return, and he will make his rule and restoration visible. He will reconcile heaven and earth. That's the news. That's the story. It's him. There's one person. It's Christ. So what's our story? What's the story that you tell other people, maybe when you're filling out a resume, maybe you're being interviewed, first date, you hope somebody, you're impressing somebody. What is the story you tell other people about yourself? There's a carefully curated narrative that we often give to other people so they have a certain image of, of who we are. And that's, that's okay. We can't tell people everything about us because every first date would last for weeks. You can't do that. But what kind of image are we trying to present? But maybe even a better question is this. What is the story that you tell yourself about yourself? How about when you've failed a final? How about when you've disappointed yourself and the people you love most? What is the story you tell yourself about yourself? I'm a bleeping loser. I'm unlovable. I can't believe that I, I did this again. I'm worthless. What's that inner narrative for you? It's different for all of us, but we all have, according to the, the parts theory, is we all have an inner critic who loves to jump up and attack us, that judge and prosecutor. What's the story you tell yourself? Brene Brown, just a great author and speaker, she writes, we all have stories that we're telling ourselves. And until we get honest, until we own them, they'll continue to define us. 
When we let false stories define us, here it is, it prevents us from living into another story, a better and a truer story. She wrote this in the book, Rising Strong. One of the quotes that I love from Brene Brown that shows up in a lot of her books and speaking is this line, the story I'm telling myself is, so when you've, when you've reacted, and, and it's kind of surprising how big your reaction has been, when there's something going on, you're like, whoa, where did that come from? She asks us to question, what's the story I'm telling myself right now? When someone maybe treats me in a way that I view as disrespectful and all of a sudden I'm just exploding. Is that because internally I'm believing? Maybe I'm not worthy of that respect. Maybe I'm believing a lie that I don't have that value that God created me with. What's the story I'm telling myself? And if we're not living in light of the truest story, the story of Christ, then the way we live won't align with the restoring, reconciling, renewing work of Christ in the world. Moral philosopher Alistair McIntyre wrote that I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? So what story am I living in light of? Is it the inner narratives that are too small, that are a lie? Or am I living in light of this story of Christ, crucified, buried, risen, ruling, returning? In these verses, Paul invites us to resituate our lives in light of that bigger, better story. So with all that as prelude, let's take a look at our scripture. Colossians 3 Verses 1 to 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. It starts like this, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. We see there the fundamental person we've been talking about. There's the one person and part of his story, Christ risen and reigning. So let's question these verses for a few minutes or allow them to question us is probably better. Paul starts out his text with this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. What? What do we do in light of that? Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts and minds. Set them where? Where do we set our hearts and minds? Some of us will see three words. Set your hearts and minds on things above. Set your hearts on things above. And that will be our chief focus. Okay. All right. So I need to let the things of this earth become strangely dim. And I need to set my heart and my mind on things above. And if those are the only three words that we see, it can lead us to kind of a warped spirituality. 
It was one that I certainly grew up with. Uh, some of the songs that shaped me as a little kid are, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. I grew up in the American South. So, so we, we love to sing songs like that. And, and, and there's, some, there's some beauty and there's some hope there, but it can be just a, on things above. Or another one that shaped me when I was in Sunday school as a little boy. I'd have a teacher, she'd hold up a card with these big words written on it, because uh, we didn't have PowerPoint yet. And uh, there, was a, there was a picture of a rocket ship, and we'd sing this song. Uh, how, how, did it, how did it start? Oh, yeah. Somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place. You sang that, Michelle? Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, and, and, and then it would end with... 10 and 9, 8 and 7, 6 and 5 and 4. We're counting down, just like they do in NASA before they send the rocket ship to outer space. And so in my little five-year-old brain, I'm picturing this little disembodied soul of Matt at some point shooting up into outer space. And I'd get up there somewhere and I'd find my cloud and my harp and my little disembodied soul would get a crown. I didn't know how that all worked, but it was awesome. Set your hearts and minds on things above. See, if that's all we see, then we miss the point. I don't think that was Paul's point. Set your hearts and minds on things above. Because there's another three words that I think are far more important. Why do we set our hearts and minds on things above? Because that's where Christ is. The point is Christ. It's not location. The point is Christ. It's where Christ is. We set our hearts and our minds on Christ. That's our fundamental connection. Because if that's our fundamental connection, then we can live life here properly. Set our hearts and minds on things above where Christ is. If we set our minds on things above, then we start to imagine the world in light of Christ and who he is and what he can do and what he says is possible and impossible. Because our minds get so restricted if, if we're stuck in the box of empire or we're stuck in the box of spiritualism because it's about me or somebody else. No, set your minds on things above. Imagine the world in light of Christ. And just imagine. Imagine you're walking through the desert from Israel and you come through this part of the land that's inhabited by the Samaritans. We hate the Samaritans. They hate us. They're half-breeds. But Jesus sends us away and, and we come back and we see him talking with not only a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman by himself. Jesus, what are you doing? These are the hated people. And then we look. We see she's gone back into town. Good, she's at least distant. But as we look in the distance, we see that she's bringing townspeople. There's a whole horde of them coming towards us. If, if I'm seeing things just on the, you know, everyday earthly plane, and I see a bunch of people I hate running at me, I'm turning, I'm running the other way. I'm like, get me out of Samaria. But no, what does Jesus say? He looks at them and he says, lift up your eyes. Look, the fields are white unto harvest. Jesus sees the kingdom coming. Jesus can, can imagine this is a fruitful field. And if Jesus can imagine that Samaria is a fruitful field, he looks at your life. 
The parts of the life of your life that you're disgusted by, that you're like, ah, man, that's a place of death. He looks at that and he says, lift up your eyes. Look at the fields. They're ready for harvest. I can bring my kingdom there. Let your imaginations be shaped by the Jesus story. Let your heart be shaped by the Jesus story. If our hearts are shaped by the Jesus story, it expands our hearts so that we can love those people and those things the way Jesus loves. It's not an earth-denying spirituality. It, it's, it's the kind of love that God showed right from the beginning where he gets his hands dirty and he forms people and he even breathes into them. It gets close with people. We don't have to hate people or, uh, or turn our back on people just because they disagree with us. Our hearts shrink so much. And it drives me crazy right now in the Twitter feeds I follow and the Facebook feeds as I go down and I know I shouldn't do this, but read the responses, people responding to each other and how quickly it turns from I disagree with you to you are an enemy. Either you're evil or you're an idiot. No, that, that's not the way we love people when our hearts are set on Jesus first. When our imaginations and our affections are connected with Jesus primarily, then we can imagine and love people like Jesus did. Jesus had a rich young ruler come to him. A rich young ruler that I think Jesus knew his heart. Jesus wasn't surprised that very soon that rich young ruler would turn away because he loved wealth more than Jesus. But it said Jesus loved him. Jesus looked at a crowd of people coming to follow him and Jesus knew they just wanted another Big Mac. But said he loved them. He had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Christ is the one person. He's the one person whose story is big enough to encompass ours and the world's story. So let your minds and your hearts be shaped by him. Set your hearts and minds above where Jesus is. One person, one posture. There's a fundamental posture that the people of Jesus are invited to take in relation to him. And it's a relation, a posture that is shown by the inspired movie, Rogue One, a Star Wars movie. It's a posture that is embodied by that blind warrior monk, Chirrut Emery, when he says this mantra again and again, I'm one with the force and the force is with me. I'm one with the force, and the force is with me. Come on, any Star Wars fans here? Am I the only nerd here? Oh, good. good. I'm glad I'm not the only one. You remember that story? I mean, it's amazing what he's able to do connected with the, the force in this way. And not only does it allow him to do these amazing things, but it inspires his brother at the end of the movie, who's so, like, he, he's so inspired. He goes and fights in an incredible way against incredible odds with his mantra, I'm one with the force, and the force is with me. Now, I don't think Paul would have been as impressed, you know, with the force and Star Wars as I am. But he certainly is impressed with the word with. That's the posture. The posture is with. Throughout all of Colossians, the word with is, is huge. All of Paul's letter, but especially Colossians. In our four verses, 
Paul writes, I'm raised with Christ. My life is hidden with Christ. We will appear with him. Our new life, our truest life, our full life is all found with Christ. For those of us who have been around 10th for a while, we've heard this a lot. One of our taglines is with God for others. With God. It's so simple, but it's huge. It's critical that we live a life with God. Because we can get confused how we relate uh, to, to God. Uh, we sang a song today, it's, it's not about the blessing. Sometimes we get so confused about what is life with God about. Uh, the Indo-American author Sky Jatani wrote a book a decade back called With, Reimagining the Way You Relate to God. And he said some of us as individuals and in churches, we have four other postures that we adopt. Some of us live a life from God. Now that sounds very spiritual. I want life from God. But if that's our fundamental posture, it can get into what that song was challenging us with. We want God's blessings and gifts. God, send your gifts, send your blessings more than God himself. We want the blessings, life from God. Some of us seem to live a life over God. And, and that is this, this posture of abandoning God in favor of proven formulas, controllable outcomes. I just look in the scripture because, because I want to know, okay, where's, where, where's the clue that'll give my life, make my life controllable, under control? Okay, Ecclesiastes tells me, cast your bread upon the water and it will be returned what is it, a hundredfold or thousandfold, fourfold? I don't remember. I should know that. Um, but throw, cast your bread upon the water. All right, I'm going out to Spanish banks. I'm going to chuck my bread on the water and God will give me more. This, these proven formulas that we, that we seek for, life over God. Some of us, our fundamental posture is life for God. And again, that sounds so good. But if that's our fundamental posture, we can focus on accomplishing great things for God as if the point of the faith is to do more things. It's about my accomplishment. And that's not the point. Life for God. And finally, some of us live as our fundamental posture, life under God. And again, there's a goodness to that, but if that's our fundamental posture, then we can start to relate to God as a set of rules and rituals to follow. That Colossians story we talked about at the beginning. It's just about me, you know, obeying all the rules, just doing it all right, as if that will make God love me more. God will never love you more than he does now. I don't have to earn that. So, Jatani writes, only a life with God sees him as our true desire rather than a device. And only a life spent in communion with him can lead us to faith, hope, and love. And that fundamental person, fundamental posture, the fundamental person, Jesus, the posture with, leads to a certain way of life. And starting in the very next verse, Colossians 3, 5, Paul will call the Colossian Christians to a certain way of life. But those verses, how I live, starts with what story am I a part of? And how will I live in relation to Jesus? The ethical call to follow Christ is based on the presence of Christ and our posture of being with him. Anth told you at the beginning of this, uh, as I started today, that I work in a long-term care facility. 
And so uh, everyone I work with needs total care from others, and the vast majority have a certain type of uh, some kind of dementia. And so there's a man in the place I work named, I'll call him Bill, um, and he's a man that comes to almost every chapel service I run. This is a wonderful man of faith. Uh, he loves to bless other people and pray for other people, but he lives with a dementia that is cruel. He's confused, and he knows he's confused, and every day he learns again for the first time that his beloved wife of 60 years has died. Can you imagine that trauma? Every day, learning for the first time, she's dead, isn't she? So three weeks ago, I'd had a chapel service, and once again, after the service, I'm walking Bill uh, back to his room, and he's confused. He said, I, I, have a, I have a room here? And until I walk him back to his room and show him the nameplate on his door, he, do, he doesn't know. But as I'm walking Bill back to his room, he, he told me something that just showed me how he can be a man who continues to love and bless. And he said this. He said, you know, Matt, I, I don't know where I am but I know I'm with God, and he's with me. I'm with God, he's with me. And you know, I'm with Bill. I'm often confused. I don't know the next step to take. I don't know where life is heading on a grand global scale and in my, in my own life. But I want to live in the reality that Bill reminds me of. I don't know where I am. I don't know the full story. I'm often confused, but I know this. I'm with Christ He's with me. You're with Christ. He's with you. You are never alone. You are not abandoned. You are with Christ. He is with you. The crucified Christ loves you and gave himself for you. He is with you. The risen Christ who shows you new life is possible. The risen Christ is with you. The ruling Christ who has overcome all the powers that will lay claim to your life. The ruling Christ is with you. And the Christ who will one day return, the Christ who is your fullest life, who will show you at some point, this is what it's all about. This is what you're all about. The return Christ, he is with you. The crucified, risen, ruling, and reigning Christ, the returning Christ is with you. You're with Christ, he's with you. You're with Christ, he's with you. Amen.